We're going to continue our series this morning in Acts, in chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles, and as Tom would say, I hope you do, you could turn there now. But before we jump into the text, I want to tell you a story. There was a superintendent overseeing a construction site. And he had this sneaky feeling that someone, or maybe multiple people, were stealing something from his site, were taking things. And so he installed a security guard at the entrance and the exit of the, of the site. And he told the security guard, I need you to check every person that comes in and out, regardless. Even check my stuff. Let's just check everybody. Make sure no one's taking anything. Security guard says, no problem. So this guy, the next day, he comes. He's leaving the site. He's a worker. And he's carrying a wheelbarrow. And inside the wheelbarrow is this small little box. Nice, cute little box with a lid. And the security guard says, sir, I'm going to need to stop you. I don't know if you've heard. I have to check everybody coming and going. What's in the box? And the worker says, oh, it's just sawdust. And the security guard's a little confused. Oh, yeah, sawdust. So he says, I'm going to have to see inside the box. No problem. Looks inside the box. In fact, the box is filled with sawdust. And he's like, okay, well, puts his fingers in, wiggles around, makes sure nothing's hiding on the bottom. There's nothing in there. It's just sawdust. And he's like, okay, you're weird, but go. The next day, the same thing happens. The same worker with a wheelbarrow, small little box, same deal. What's in the box? Sawdust, checks, wiggles his fingers, sawdust. Next day, third day, fourth day, fifth day. And by the fifth day, he's like, what is going on with this guy? What's he using the sawdust for? So he's like, sir, I'm going to have to check the box again. Sawdust, okay, I know the drill. Takes it off, looks in. It's just sawdust. And he looks at the guy and he goes, I just have this really weird feeling that you're stealing something because who takes sawdust? Like, I'm so confused by this. And the guy looks at him, the worker looks at him and goes, yeah, I've been stealing wheelbarrows for the past five days. (laughs) I tell you that story because, you know, when you hear that, you, at least for me, maybe you're like way smarter than I am. And you, you realize he was stealing wheelbarrows. But most of us just are focused on the box, right? The small little box and the sawdust inside. And we're thinking, oh, is he like have a little pouch in the box? That was he stealing money? What's he doing? And the reason I tell you that story is because I think we're so often focused on small singular things instead of the big picture, the big things. So this morning, we're going to look at the question and kind of ask ourselves the question, what is the one big thing? as we read through Acts 13, that God is calling us to repent of, to change, to do, or to realize, and try our best to look at what the big issue is instead of the small issue. You know, a lot of times when we come to church, we're convicted or we're challenged possibly um, to give more generously, as an example, or to give more of our time to serving and to the church. And we may be missing the bigger picture, picture that we have an issue with worshiping money and individualism. Or maybe we feel called to go to Haiti this summer. And we just, we've always wanted to go on a mission trip. We've never been able to go. And here's the opportunity. And we've heard great reviews from everybody that's went. And so we feel challenged and called to sign up and go. And so we do. But maybe we miss the bigger picture that God is calling us to more than just one week. Maybe a lifestyle of advocacy for the poor and the hungry and and the homeless and and the left out. Maybe he's calling us to more involvement in Haiti than just a one-week trip. And so my prayer for myself and for us as a church is that we would realize individually and collectively what is the big thing 
that God is calling us to realize. So let me pray for that, and then we're going to look at Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 13. Lord, we just pray simply this morning that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see truth, that you would take away our pride, that you would remove even the small things, Lord, and show us the big things, and that we would see Jesus and his freedom and the the work that he calls us to. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're picking up in Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Here's what it says in the first few verses. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So, John, so Paul is with Barnabas here, his companion, and John's with him. And they go to this one city and they decide, no, we don't want to stay there. And they go to another city, Perga. And inside Perga, John says, I'm out. I'm going back to Jerusalem. It's a long trek over the seas. And uh, he leaves. We don't know why. Luke never tells us. We do know later in Acts, Paul was pretty upset that John left. So now it's just Barnabas and it's just Paul, and they decide that they're not going to stay in Perga. They're going to go to Antioch, which is this big colonial city, a very important city in the region, a leading city. And they're going to travel 100 miles to Antioch. Now, this is not a little journey. This is not like a car ride or a quick train ride or a camel straight path. This is a ascent from the lowlands to the highlands, up to 3,600 feet, 100 miles over a mountain range. And not only that, was the route was also very barren, very unprotected. It was infamous for bandits. It still is today. And actually, the Romans were never able to fully control this region. So it's a very dangerous, dangerous trek. Paul and Barnabas really feel that God is leading them to the city. So they head there. They make it safe. But we don't really know what happened along the way. They make it there. The first thing they do is they go to the synagogue. Now, the synagogue, when we hear about it, we understand it's Jewish, and they go there, and that's where the Jews read the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and they worship. But it's more than just a place of worship. It's really the hub of Jewish life. Judicial decisions are made there. It's the civic center. It's a social gathering place. It really is the hub of Jewish culture and life. And more than just Jews are there, Gentiles are there as well at this moment when Paul arrives. A lot of them, actually. And so Paul is there in the synagogue, and here's what happens. Verse 15, after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So the rulers of the synagogue see that Paul and Barnabas are there, and as traditional custom would be, they'd invite a visiting rabbi to to give a word. And so they do. We're not expecting what Paul is about to say, but they offer him a chance to stand up and say something. And so he stands up, and this is where we pick up in verse 16. So Paul stood up, and motioning with his hands, he said this, Men of Israel... And you who fear God, so the Jews and those Gentiles present, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. For about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. 
And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then he asked, then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So Paul stands up and he looks at his audience and he says, Listen, you you know the story. We just were reading from the Law and the Prophets. God led us out of Egypt dealt with us in our whining and our complaining in the wilderness. And then he eventually brought us into the promised land, destroyed seven nations, established us there, gave us the land as an inheritance. And then he gave us judges and we wanted kings. So then he gave us a king, Saul. And after 40 years, he removed him and he brought up David, which all the Jews love. He's the best, even though he epically failed. Raised up David, and David was a man after God's own heart. He did his will. And there was a promise given to David that Paul is picking apart and is emphasizing. And it's that God promised David that there would be someone that would come from his line, a son that would be an eternal king, that would establish an eternal kingdom, that David's kingdom would have no end. And Paul says, this is Jesus, the Savior, the eternal king, the better David, And then he inserts John the Baptist, which is kind of interesting. John the Baptist is an important figure, but not one of the ones that you would think initially. And he says that John the Baptist, when he was in the wilderness, the weird guy eating the locust, which is who John was, was a bizarre dude, first hipster. And he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for all of Israel. This is not a small statement. He's saying that John the Baptist, who was preparing the way for Jesus, was coming to Jewish people and telling them they needed conversion, that they needed salvation. This is one of the main reasons why the Jews, a lot of them, persecuted and hated Paul. He's telling them that John the Baptist, and as well as Jesus, and as Paul was saying, is that they're standing before God, they're chosen state and their place in the family of God is not secure unless they believe in Jesus. That they need conversion. They need repentance. Paul continues, and now he's going to focus on Jesus specifically in verse 26. He says, Brothers, the sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, 
This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. He tells them the story of Jesus. They're familiar with this. Jesus was condemned, guilty, punishable of death, though he was innocent. And that the people of God condemned, he's saying, God in the flesh. And they humiliated him, and they brutalized him, and they put him on a tree, on a cross, which is the symbol of a curse placed upon that human being. So Jesus, God in the flesh, Paul is saying, was a cursed man. And then he was laid in the ground, and he rose from the dead, and he appeared to many, including the disciples, the people that were going out to the world, including Paul himself, who's giving this message, and telling them to bring the message of salvation, that Jesus is who he says he is, to the whole world, Jew and Gentile. Now, this didn't go over very well with the Jews. You see, the Jews of all people should have understood this, right? He's saying, you're reading the law and the prophets, you didn't understand the utterances, and you're not recognizing that what John the Baptist was telling you, that you need to be prepared for repentance, that the Messiah is coming, you totally neglected him. Not only did you neglect and reject him, you murdered him. You could not imagine a God like Jesus. You could not imagine a Savior like Jesus, and so you rejected him. And when we read this, at least for me, when I read the New Testament, it's so easy for me to look down upon the first century Jews. But I think we need to be really careful of that, because I think we have a lot of similarities with them. Most of us in this room go to church often. Every Sunday, at least when we're in town. And we do the Christian thing well, right? We do the religious thing. A lot of us are engaged in personal worship and we're studying God's word on our own throughout the week. We're in a community group and building community with one another. We're serving the poor and the homeless. Many of us probably have devotional books or little prayer books on our toilets. We maybe have a little, you know, the little note card and we write little sayings and put it on our mirror in our bathroom or on our dashboard so we see Jesus all the time. And we have sayings all over our house and maybe an app on our phone or maybe we tweet or we Facebook or we Instagram a a, a nice saying or a scripture verse about God. You know, the, the cool thing now is like take a picture of the sunrise or the sunset and then like put like a verse there. I think it's pretty cool. We do that, right? We read our Bibles. We use it as a guide for our life. It helps to inform the way that we live out our life and vocation and business and whatever we may be doing. It informs the way we raise our children. We're very, very religious people. We really get the Bible and the Christian lifestyle. And of all people, we should know Jesus. Of all people. The question is, do we? Do you really, really know him? Because you see, the Jews here, they knew God. It's not as if they believed in some foreign God or some multitude of gods. They believed in the God of the Bible. Same God that we worship here today. They believed in that God. They worshiped him. They tied to him. They served him. They tried to live according to his commands. And yet they rejected him because they rejected Jesus. You see, they could not imagine a God, they could not fathom a God who would send the Savior of the world and have him born in a dirty, smelly manger, raised up in an ordinary life for 30 years, unrecognizable, not really striking looking, and then allowed himself 
to be humiliated and spit upon and murdered innocently on a tree symbolizing his cursing. They had no category for that. And so since they had no category for it, they rejected it categorically. You see, this this sermon that Paul preaches should be very convicting to us as modern American Christians because I think many of us cannot imagine a God who fill in the blank. You see, the Jews here, the religious and the righteous people, they could not get around the idea that God would give salvation. They couldn't fathom that. Because they thought they earned it. They thought they deserved it. They thought they, that they did the religious thing well and God would reward them. And the Gentiles in the audience could not imagine a God, the unrighteous, the pagans, they couldn't imagine a God who would actually give them salvation. They had earned and deserved nothing. They couldn't imagine a merciful Savior who would descend to their level and sympathize with them and save them from their wretchedness. You see, I think we're okay with a lot of things in the church. We're okay with the theological term substitutionary atonement. Most of us are, which essentially means that we believe that Jesus died on the cross and he atoned for our sins. He substituted himself for us. That's cool. We're also cool with faith, you know? I mean, some of us get wrapped up in works a little bit, and we think that if we do stuff for God, he's going to love us more. But ultimately, we, we love the idea of faith, and we're secure. We're going to heaven. We're good because we believe in Jesus. He died on the cross and rose from the grave. But my fear is that a lot of us and a lot of people in churches may be misinformed and may be misjudging Christianity a little bit. Because when I say the word religious, when I say that we're very religious, often we think of things that we do, right? Works, and that's true. But it's more than that. It can be more than that. Can't faith be something that we do? Can it just be a religious thing? Can it be something that we believe because we're part of the club? You know, a lot of us, a lot of people find their identity and their place and their family in Christianity because they're born in the church. They're raised in the church. It's just, it's who they are. It's part of their being. They're supposed to go. They go as much as they can. They do the religious thing. And so they believe what's associated with that group and they try to do what's associated with that group. And Christianity becomes a social club and their faith becomes a superficial religious phrase that they say. We have... If we were to poll all of us, right, and ask us what we believe, I'm pretty sure we would have, a lot of us would have the same little religious phrase that we quote. I'm not saying this, I'm not saying all this to make any one of you doubt your faith, because I really truly believe that if you believe in Jesus and you trust in faith in him and his death and his resurrection, you know it. It's in your soul, it's rooted in your mind and in your heart and nothing and no one can shake that. And you know that. But I do think that we are living in a really interesting time in history, a time that's very opportune for the the gospel, a time where the church can be, and for many, is a social club more than what it's called to be in Scripture. You see, there's a lot of people that cannot imagine a God who fill in the blank. And there's also a lot of people in our culture that cannot imagine a God whose people fill in the blank. 
See, we're all in different places here. A lot of us in this room may not know if we really fully believe yet. We don't know if we trust in Christ, and that's okay. Salvation is very much a process for many of us. Some of us maybe have a hard time really surrendering our life to Christ. As Tom likes to give the example, we have a hard time putting everything in the bag and then jumping in in ourself and tying it up over our head. We have a hard time with a lot of these different things. We have a lot of big issues, all of us. And there's a lot of us in this room from different places, Christians and non-Christians, but there's a whole lot of religious people in this room, and I'm one of the chief offenders. We are very religious people. And it's not that religion is bad, but it's that if we don't really get and we don't really believe what Paul is about to say, religion is dangerous. Here's what he says. Verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man's forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. He's painting the difference between Jesus and religion, right? The law of Moses is religion. And it's not a bad thing. It's God's law. It's the way that God has designed for us to live and to be. It's a good thing. But he's saying that if you think that the law and doing religious things, and doing anything that you think yourself is going to make you happy in some way is going to give you freedom and joy, you are mistaken. The only thing that frees you is Jesus, and he actually frees you from everything. Not some things, but everything. Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Just take that in for a second. Jesus frees you from everything. Religion frees you from nothing. See, I, I've heard a lot of people say, you know, I've tried the Christian thing. I've done the Christian thing. Um, and it just didn't do it for me. You know, I, I, I didn't really feel what I was hoping to feel. Um, I didn't really get what I was hoping to get. And so I'm going to go try something else. And I think if we really look inside ourselves, that is a true statement of all of us. Maybe not in Christianity as a whole, but maybe an aspect of Christianity. You know, I've tried the Christian thing in regards to serving or tithing or evangelism or worship or community. Fill in the blank. But I just didn't really get what I was hoping to get. I didn't really feel what I was hoping to feel. I don't know if it's really me, you know. It's for someone else. I'll do this thing. Essentially, what we're saying is, you know, I, I, I didn't receive the joy and the feeling and the freedom that I thought, and so I'm going to reject that aspect of God and His nature and Jesus, and I'm going to kind of not fully believe that Jesus has freed me from everything, and I'm going to go find it for myself somewhere else. And see, Paul warns us of this thinking right in the next verse. In verse 40, he says this, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. See, this is, this is a quotation from Habakkuk when King Nebuchadnezzar is so swelled up with pride because of what he's accomplished and what he's done. And he's being warned to realize what God has done and the work that God has done and to surrender to Christ 
and to find the freedom in God. And, and Paul is warning the people here not to think the same way. Not to think that we have it together, that we know where we need to go, we know what we need to do, we know, okay, this is what I'm going to do in the Christian life, and this is what I'm not going to do in the Christian life, but to let our pride down and to let ourselves down and say, Christ has freed me from everything, and that gives me the freedom to pursue everything that Christ has for me, to actually join his work and acknowledge that he's doing it. You know, we hear this a lot, right? We hear this a lot in the church, that we're called to action, we're called to live for Christ, we're, you know, you're saved by grace and now you're called to live for Him. But see, our culture preaches us a very different message, right? Here's what our culture tells us. If something upsets you, makes you sad, and it isn't right for you, then throw it away and distract yourself and find something else. If you're upset, if you're sad, if something's not right for you, banish it, keep yourself busy, go shopping, go rent a DVD, go smoke a joint, go kill zombies on your Xbox, right? Find stuff to distract you from what's really going on and what you're really feeling and banish it aside and don't deal with it because that's hard. You don't want to do that. So just find stuff that makes you happy, even if it's just temporarily happiness, and find it and plug it into your life all around so you can distract yourself. Because deep down, we all acknowledge what Paul says elsewhere when he says, what I don't want to do, that I do. What I want to do, that I don't do. So we have to admit that inside ourselves. But on the outside, we like to save face. We like to paint on a smile. We like to do the religious thing and feel like everything's together. The problem is in Christianity, it doesn't give us that option. See, Judaism and Islam, the two other great monotheistic religions, give you a great structure, very specific things they call you to do so you can be religious and feel good about yourself. Christianity does not give you that option. It gives you actually crazy general principles to follow. Here's what Christianity tells you to do, just a few of them. Give all of your possessions away, everything you own. Refuse to defend yourself. Love strangers and enemies as much as your own family. Live today like tomorrow doesn't exist. And invest your ordinary life in drastic, uncalculated, unprotected generosity. And if that, if that wasn't enough, it also says not only do are you called to do those things, but also your motives matter. So if generosity is for self-gain or self-interest, it's not generosity at all. This is thrillingly impractical, right? <laughs> Or is it? Because in this, everyone fails. Francis Spufford says this. I think it's brilliant. Suddenly, in its lack of realism, Christianity becomes very realistic indeed. Intelligently resigned to our vast array of imperfections and much more interested in what we can do to live with them than in the laws designed to keep us segregated. Christianity maintains no register of clean and unclean. It doesn't believe in the possibility of clean. See, Christianity is never supposed to slip into a cozy religious club. It's supposed to be, the church is supposed to be the league of the guilty. Messed up, broken, imperfect, struggling people who come together as free people. With different struggles and different sin and different issues, but we come together as a family to encourage each other, to love each other, to walk hand in hand towards the work, the big things that God is calling us to. 
and encourage each other in the big things we're struggling with individually. That's the church. You see, I said in the beginning, what is the big thing God is calling you to realize, repent of, or grow in? It could be a lot of things. It could even be faith. You could realize that you've been playing the religious game for a long time. But no matter what it is, sit on what Paul says when he says, by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And join the work of Christ in your life and in this church. And you don't have to have everything together. You don't have to have most of the pieces in your life arranged neatly. You don't have to feel mostly clean and be mostly unbroken. Because first off, you're never going to reach that point. And second off, that's not the gospel. The gospel is we are a people that are guilty and messed up. And we're to pursue Christ and and to desire to have a massive impact for his kingdom as broken, unclean people. We're about to sing a song. It's probably the most recognizable song in the world. It's one of my favorite songs, Amazing Grace. Sung everywhere. It's been such a testimony to so many Christians all over the world. It's an interesting song. John Newton wrote it when he was coming to the realization. He was being awakened to the fact that God's grace frees him. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He gets it. And he's presumably thinking about his struggle with alcoholism and his licentiousness and some of the issues that he says. And he's overwhelmed with the fact that God would forgive him and love him for those things. And he's writing a song to walk forward in grace and to pursue Christ. But here's the wrinkle. When John Newton writes this hymn, he's a slave trader. His vocation is to collect human beings and buy and sell them, put them in horrible, horrific conditions in his boat, and sell them to brutal masters who are going to treat them and their children and their children's children after them like objects. So why in the world would we sing this song? How could he write this song? Well, see, here's the deal. He came to understand the grace and the forgiveness of Christ. And it freed him. And in his freedom, he realized a big thing. And that was that his vocation was horrific. And he gave it up. And when he realized that, he ended the rest of his life being a fervent activist against slave trading. But yet when he wrote it, he didn't realize it. But the freedom of Christ and the amazing grace that he encountered opened up a world for him to look at himself, to see his wretchedness, and by God's grace to see him grow through those things. He realized the wheelbarrows. And my prayer is for us as we sing this song and we think on the words and we think about what Paul was saying to us this morning, God's word would convict us to realize that Christ has freed us from everything. And the freedom in which he's given us gives us the ability and the insurance to come together as a community, to join Christ's work, and to analyze ourselves honestly, and to grow more like Christ in our freedom. Because we're the league of the guilty. We're to do it together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. 
We thank you for freedom, for forgiveness, and for amazing grace. God, we pray that as we sing this song, we would think on these words and we would see that they are true of us. That we would move forward to pursue you, to join your work, to notice the big things in our life, to repent, to realize, and to do what you have called us to do. May that be true. May we realize our freedom and live in that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.